0: Bibles go ahead and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 and as you're turning there just to give you a kind of a quick recap about where we've been Um, we just left chapter 2 verse 1 through 11 where as I I just mentioned Paul kind of goes on a tangent speaking about Jesus and the things that Jesus has done and then he's, he is grounding the entire book in that, that passage. So it's a, it's a really good tangent. In the verses that we're about to read, he's now Paul is circling back to verse 27. You remember what he said in verse 27 of chapter 1. He said, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So He's speaking about this vision. We spoke about a vision of a, a life lived with Christ, uh, the intention that should come with that, and means and training, which is what we, we we're just talking about. So Paul is circling about, around back to verse 27, living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, and that's where we're gonna pick it up in verse 12 and 13. And so with your Bibles open... Let's read together. This is what Paul says. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we just ask uh, that this passage would come true in our lives and in our church. That what Paul is saying would be a reality for uh, for everyone in this room. Invite you to take as long as it is needed and to move around all the things that need to be moved in order for this to happen. And today, would you just show us why this is such a good thing? Show us why the way of Jesus is the best way to live. And show us how all of the other things that we've been chasing are counterfeits that simply do not reach high enough. God, I pray that out of that our hearts would be stirred up and we would see in the man, the God, Jesus, the best thing that's ever happened to us. We ask for transformation, Lord, on an individual basis, but also on a corporate level, that our church would look more like Jesus as the days go on. Thank you for your presence. Thank you that you're here with us. You promised to be here with us. We Just ask for a deepened awareness of your presence, not just in preaching, but also in, in being together, in singing and being still and knowing that you are God. And listening to what the Spirit is saying to the church. And pray that your presence would pervade everything that we're doing right now. And that you would be the ultimate thing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you this question. what, what uh, Could you describe your salvation to me? What does salvation look like for you? What are some of the things that you would say? Now... I think there's probably a wide spectrum of experience in that regard. You know, I'm thinking of like seasoned Christians who've been following Jesus for years, maybe decades. I'm thinking of people who maybe just started following Jesus, so like young in the faith and it's new for them. But I'm also thinking maybe there's there's people in this room who maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or maybe... Just don't even know. Maybe you're like, I, I don't even know if I am or not, or whether I like that, or what that means. I'm kind of just checking it out and curious. I'm really glad that you're here to do that with us. Um, so maybe for you, you would say, I don't, I don't really know what salvation is. Don't even know if I care. Glad that you're here to, to kind of dive deeper into that uh, in the Word with us. The, the other two, you're, you're a follower of Christ, you're a Christian. Regardless of whether you, wherever you fall on the spectrum, you might, perhaps you might think of your salvation, the first thing that comes to mind is a date. Um, you know, like a, like a born on date, you know, some beverages have born on dates, it means this is the date in which they were bottled, May 31st, you know, 2000, whatever. So some of you would describe your salvation in those terms, maybe. A born on date, you would refer to a particular date in your history. Uh, when you met the Lord for the first time so you might describe like your conversion or you might use different terminology for that you might describe you know I was born again on such and such date or I met the Lord on such and such date or you know back you know in May of this year I went down when Billy Graham was preaching I went down the aisle with Louis Zamperini side by side and that's where I met the Lord so for and those are our true experiences and realities but maybe when we think of salvation we think of a date in our history. Um, the beauty of that is that we can pinpoint a time where we experienced a move of God in our lives. And for so many people looking back on that experience reminds us that it was that it's real, right? When all the confusion and the lies come our way, when we're down on ourselves, when circumstances are difficult, we, we can remember those moments in our past and history where God moved and we're like, I know this is real. The, the more difficult part of that is if we only look to our past for an experience of God and we're not living in present experiences of God. It can whittle itself down to being just that. And so for some people, you might, you might refer to your salvation as something that happened in June uh, of 1984 when you first met the Lord. But between then and now, you don't really have an active relationship with God. You have to look back into your past. I, I want you to not do away with the born-on date, the born-again date. I want you to add to that something that Paul adds to it. It seems like something that's taking place right now. He says it in his first line. He says, work out your own salvation. He's telling us something about the, the, the substance of our salvation right here by telling us to work it out. Now that's maybe causing some of you to cringe based on what you know of your salvation. And if all you know of your salvation is that it's something that happened, uh, in a, it's a static event that happened sometime in my past, this phrase doesn't make any sense to you. If you're like, I got saved when I was 21, you know, back in such and such year, doesn't make sense to work something out that took place in my past. What is Paul saying? I want to just dive into a couple of these words because they're so fun. That phrase, work out, when he says to work out your salvation, that phrase, work out, comes from the Greek word kategodzomai, which means literally to work out. But if we were to apply it in, in, in such a sense that we, we had an idea of what he was saying, Paul is, is right here speaking about an intentional, strategic, effort, being put towards something, putting an intentional, strategic effort towards something that you are in right now. When he says it, it it actually has this present tense to it. So he's speaking, when he gives this command, he's speaking about something as a continuous process. So we could say, Paul is saying, to devote yourself to an intentional, strategic, ongoing effort. So already, he's he's telling us something about our salvation. He's telling us that it's not just an event that took place in our past. It is an ongoing and present experience. It is an ongoing process. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, he's not saying that what happened in the past can be undone. He's saying what happened in the past can be fully experienced now. In fact, you must do that. He's commanding us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to do that. So it, it might be that you were born again at a certain point in your life, but what Paul is saying right here is that what has happened in your past must be continually worked out. And when he says work out your salvation, he's essentially just speaking about participating in something that God has already done in your life to participate in something that God has done towards the intended result. Put intentional, strategic effort into your spiritual growth and development. That's essentially what Paul is saying. And you might say, so am I, am I basically trying to change myself right now? No. Paul doesn't say, Paul says work out your salvation. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He's not telling you to do something for yourself. Or in other words, he's not saying to work for something in order to get it. And, uh, elsewhere, he tells us, uh, tells us that salvation is actually a gift from God. That every part of salvation, every part of this is actually a gift of God. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Salvation is by grace. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is a gift of God, not a, not a, as a result of works. and Some of you are like that. Doesn't make any sense. Paul is writing in a, uh, uh, excuse me. Paul is writing in Philippians to work out your own salvation, but in Ephesians he's saying your salvation is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Which one is true? Both. Because look at what he says in the next line. For it is God who works in you. That's why both lines are true. It is a gift of God in which he is working in you. And we participate in it. It is completely an act of grace. And when Paul says, hey, God is working. He's the one working in you. We can think of this as an empowering mechanism. God is doing in you what you do not have the ability to do for yourself. And yet, it's not passive either, is it? God works in us and we participate in his work in our life. And so, you might say on the other end of the spectrum, well, if it's all God, it must be none of me, right? Or my effort. Or to borrow some other uh, uh, plat- uh, spiritual platitudes, uh, to let go and let God, you know, Jesus, take the wheel. He'll do everything until I die and see him face to face. I just got to sit here and let him do it. That's not what Paul is saying either. He's saying, work out that which God is doing in your life. Participate in it. And so the same grace that saves us apart from works is the same grace that empowers and trains us to work. Paul would say to one of his protégés, Titus, he would say, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. There it is, saved by grace. But look at what he says right after that. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that trains us. I love how Dallas Willard would put it. He said, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to your earning anything from God. Everything he gives you is a gift, and yet he gives us things as a gift that we might participate in them. So the grace of God is really just God's power towards you to do what you cannot do by yourself in the flesh. The grace of God is God's power towards you to do what you cannot do by yourself in the flesh. That's why Paul would say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not saying, you know, be afraid of God. He's using a, a phrase here that often speaks of that, that awe, that holy fear, that sense of awe and wonder. And you can think of someone who's like, I, I couldn't lift a finger to save myself, and yet God is has invaded my life and he's transforming me from the inside out. I am in awe of this God. That's what he seems to be saying. So to work out your salvation by grace is really just to apply effort where you can in utter dependence on the God who has the power to change you. And Paul starts to speak about how God changes you. And I love this. He says, God is at work in you, both to will and to work. But God is at work in you. Now just think about that for a second. God is in you. How many times do you sit and think about that, that concept? God is in you. We have a phrase used to describe that. Or we call it union with God. Union with God, this delightful truth. It's, uh, union with God is just the deepest relationship Possible with another being. It's the deepest way you can know somebody else. It's where you become one with someone else without replacing or erasing the other person. So think of God himself who exists in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We would say three completely distinct individual people and yet one God. How is that even possible? I don't know. Don't ask me those questions. But that's what the Bible leads us to believe. Three distinct identities, and yet they are so uh, in union with one another that we can call them one God. Union. Now what's crazier about this, uh, cra- even crazier than that, is that God then invites us into that same type of union. When Jesus was praying for his disciples, so for you and for me, as well as you know Peter and James and John, he prayed, he he said in John 14 verse 20, when I am raised to life again, so before he died, said when when I die and when I I am resurrected, you will know, there will come a time where you will know that I am in my Father, union, right? And you are in me and I am in you. The same union that, that The Son is known from all of eternity with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's inviting finite people like you and me into into that. And so it's not just that we're with God, although that's true. It's not just that he's shouting orders to us from afar. It's that we are in union with God. The Bible teaches this. You might be like, that's so weird and mystical. That must be for super Christians. No, this is the normal Christian life. This is what you were destined for. This is what you were made for. Jesus, said, Jesus describes eternal life. He describes it for us. I used to think of eternal life as a destination. Like, that's what happens when I die and get to a place called heaven. But Jesus described it in a different way. He said, this is eternal life that you might know, uh, excuse me, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is a, a a relationship with God and he goes on to describe that relationship as union with the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is incredible. What does Jesus do and he then uh, he's about to leave, he tells his disciples, I want you to make more disciples. What does he do? He teaches them more about union with God. You guys know this passage? Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. When he says in the middle of that, I want you to baptize disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What do you think he's saying? And when we hear the word baptism, we immediately think of one thing, right? Water. It doesn't say water. It says, I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The word that Jesus uses for baptism, even though we, we, we've locked into that so deeply, this concept of water, and it includes that later, but what he's literally saying here is to make whelmed, as in the, the word overwhelmed, or to engulf, to submerge somebody in something, you know, literally into, the word he's using, to submerge. This is all submerging language Jesus is using. In, order, uh, in other words, he's saying, in order to make disciples, I want you to do that, first of all, by submerging them into something. You might ask, well, into what? Well, you think again, Water. And so perhaps for many of us, for me, many years, thinking, okay, the way to make disciples is by dunking them in water and calling it a day. I don't know that Jesus is saying that anymore. The water comes later for a reason, but I think he's saying something different. He tells us to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I used to look at this verse and think, you know, if, if you tell me to pray in somebody's name, in the name of Jesus, you used to think, well, that means I just say a prayer, whatever it is that I'm praying, and I just tack on the name of Jesus at the end, right? It's praying in the name of Jesus. And so if we baptize somebody, and baptize them in the water, and then I just tack on in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's probably because in our day and age, names are simply labels. That's what you use to get somebody's attention. Hey! You know, <laughs> Chris! Look at me. But in Jesus' day, the name, names had this deep, heavy connotation of something else. A name was more than just a label. It explained that person. It explained their authority, their attributes, their characteristics. A name in that day spoke of their essence, their reality, their life. It seems that when Jesus is telling his disciples to make more disciples by baptizing them in the name, it seems that what he is saying right here is, I want you to immerse disciples into the life of the Trinitarian God. The way that you make disciples is by submerging and immersing them continually in the life of the Trinitarian God. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as they're doing that, teaching them to obey everything that I've said. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, water baptism is a real thing. But it's not the main thing. In the same way that for those of you who are married, the ring on your finger is not your marriage. It's a sign of your marriage, right? It's supposed to be a sign of an inward and relational reality. It's supposed to point to something between two people. But it itself does not mean anything by itself. You know, you could have a crummy marriage and a really beautiful wedding ring, and you've missed the point, right? In the same way, we're told in Scripture that water baptism is symbolic of an inward reality. It's symbolic of the real baptism. And Peter would say this later when he writes his letter. He would say, "Uh, baptism is what now saves you. Then he catches himself. He says, Not not the baptism that washes your body from dirt, but the one that cleanses your conscience. Again, immersion. What cleanses the conscience? Being brought into the life of the Trinitarian God. And so when we go under the water and we come back out, what are we doing? It's very important. It is pointing our minds and our relationships and Caesar, anyone who's looking or watching, who's vying for our allegiance, and it's telling them and ourselves, as we remember it, my allegiance is to the one to whom I have been immersed in. And we live for the tr- that true immersion. That this idea of being immersed in God, this union with God, is all over the Bible. That phrase, in Him, that you keep coming across in the New Testament, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Anytime you hear someone speaking about being in Him, that phrase is kind of shorthand for being immersed in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's shorthand for union. And that phrase occurs about 73 times in the New Testament. That's not counting the times, the other variations of that phrase. With him, in him, him being in us. When you add all of them together, it's, it's a couple hundred. This is the language of scripture. Union with God is the language of the Bible. It is the language of your salvation. So what we're talking about here is not simply something, merely something that took place When you gave your life to the Lord, it's something that you're experiencing and going through now. Brendan Manning, in his book, The Furious Longing of God, he writes, Union is one of the most explosive words in my Christian vocabulary. The daring metaphor of Jesus as bridegroom suggests that the living God seeks more than an intimate relationship with us. The reckless, raging fury of Yahweh. And when he says that, he's not speaking about his anger. He's speaking about his love. The reckless, raging, furious love of Yahweh culminates, dare we say it, in a symbiotic fashion, a union so substantive that the Apostle Paul could write, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I kind of went on a tangent about our union it's so important to understand where our actions are supposed to come from. Our behaviors. All those external things. What does union with God mean for a person working out their salvation? Paul says, God is in you. Union. God is in you working. That means when I'm trying to love my enemies, I'm not trying to love my enemies by myself. Christ who loves his enemies perfectly, is in me working me to love my enemies. I have the perfect, sinless Son of the living God in me, changing me on the inside out to become like Him. All I gotta do is participate with Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. This means that God is not, you know, over here, distant from you, shouting orders, hey, you screwed up yesterday, I want you to try better. No, he is in you, working inside you in the deepest possible way to make you more like Christ. So think of this when you hear verses like Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 through 20. Think about union. When, when Paul prays for, for Christians, he says, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power by his spirit in your inner being. Why would he pray that? Because God is in you, Christian. He's praying for a latent power to erupt to the surface and for believers to to recognize what is happening within them that is so revolutionary and transformative. This is not your everyday religion here. This is a revolution where God invades the human person and changes them from the inside out. Paul goes on to say, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, So language is all over the Bible. Paul is just telling us, God is in you, Christian, to transform you from the inside out. Are you participating in that process? And he tells us, work at it, work hard. This is the the happiest work that you will ever undertake. How many of you hate your actual jobs right now? Or some element of them? You don't have to answer that, it's a rhetorical question. How many of you love your jobs, but there's some days that you just hate? Paul's like, you want to undertake glad work? Work at this. God is in you working. And he's working in you. To do what? To will and to work. I love this line. I just love it. Because it's almost like Paul is saying, okay, God is in you, union with Christ. He's in you working. Working to do what? He's working in the deepest part of who you are in your will and he's working all the way to the most external part of who you are you're working he's working in every part of who you are there's no part of the human personality that is off limits to God he's working in it all he starts off by saying he's working in your will he's working uh, excuse me God is in you to uh, working to will such a tongue twister so many W's man God is working in you to will When the Bible speaks about the will, speaking about, if I can put it this way, the command center, the human personality. This is where you make decisions. This is the freest part of who you are. This is the most creative part of who you are. This is probably the closest, the part of you that's closest to the image of God. This is where you are creative in your own right. This is where you can decide, oh yeah, I'm going to memorize scripture with the rest of the church. Or, I am not going to do that. You have freedom. God says, I'm working in the deepest part of who you are. The Bible uses several words because this is such a complex and beautiful part of the the human person. There's several words that Scripture uses for this. You might hear will. You might hear heart. You might hear spirit. They're all referring to the same thing, the deepest part of you, where we get to decide how we want to live and the things that we want to do. It's also where, you know, in interaction with our mind, we delight in certain things. You might delight in sin. You might delight in things that aren't good for you. You might take pleasure in things that are not of God. Uh, This is where you you make intentions and you form desires, and God is saying, It's right there that I'm going to meet you. In other words, I'm going to change you on the deepest level at your heart. I'm going to change your desires. I'm going to change the things that you take pleasure in. The prophet Ezekiel told us that this was going to happen, didn't he? Back when Israel was trying to do those Ten Commandments and they were failing miserably, God said, "I basically said, I know what the problem is. It's your heart. And he goes on in Ezekiel chapter 11, also in Ezekiel 33 and Jeremiah, I think it's 32 or 33, says the same thing. It says right here, there's coming a day When I will give my people singleness of heart, devoted hearts, and I will put a new spirit within them. You hear that? Heart and spirit. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart. So they will obey my decrees and regulations. Then they will truly be my people and I will be their God. What we have here is a gentle invasion of the Holy Spirit coming into the deepest part of who you are as a person and changing you at the heart level, changing the things that you want to do. Have any of you noticed this? When you first got saved, there were were changes inside, certain things that you loved to do you didn't really like to do anymore, things that were important to you all of a sudden weren't that important to you. Also, did you notice that you started to like certain other things? Like, I talked to some of you in in recent weeks past that were like, I never thought I would start going to a church and like gathering with people. Like in a church. I used to hang out with people before, but they were a different kind of people. This is really weird. I don't know where this came from, but I'm doing it. I know where it came from. Ezekiel said, the Holy Spirit invaded your heart and gave you new desires. It's pretty awesome for the first time maybe in your life, God's will is actually a good thing to you. You can say like King David, I shall run the way of God's commandments for he shall enlarge my heart. Now, as we've discussed in the weeks past, it doesn't end with your will. More than your will has to be changed. How many of you have experienced this where you're like, you have the willpower, you just can't do it. To borrow the same, uh, the same example, you're like, I'm going to memorize the whole Bible. <laughs> and then, then on Monday, you're like, no, I'm not. <laughs> or I want to live like Jesus. I want to love my enemies. I want to be more generous. I want to be uh, more full of the, the power of the Holy Spirit. But your intentions aren't enough to change you. And so here's where Paul brings us Even farther, God doesn't just change your heart, he changes your body. He's not just working in your will, he's working in your work. Speaking about giving you new actions to match your new delights. New behaviors to match your new intentions. New habits to match your new thought life. These also come about by grace, by a spirit-empowered working. And this is what we often refer to when we speak about practices, spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines. You know, we have some of the more common ones that you think about, like reading the Bible and praying and, uh, you know, gathering together as a church. We've been talking about a few together, memorizing Scripture, uh, spending time in solitude and silence. And then there's others that you might not even think of, but they're ways of training the body Uh, such as uh, joining a home group or being in a home fellowship, something that maybe you have no time for and you don't even like, but you're like, I'm going to do this because I need to be in community. You're training yourself. You're training your body and your, your social sphere to match what's going on in your heart. Or it might be giving. It might be singing together. It might be any number of things that we do with our bodies or our minds. God is working in all of that, and all of them are important. And he's working in them for one end and for one end only, for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, with awe of God, for God is in you working to will and to work for his good pleasure. When I think of God's good pleasure in your life, the first passage that comes to mind is Romans chapter 8 when he says, uh, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He goes on to say, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them. Here's his good purpose. Here's his good pleasure. He chose you to become like his son. That is his highest goal for you. That is the most beautiful gift that he can give his people. That is the best end whether you realize it now or not. You were designed and created originally in the image of God. You know what Hebrews says about Jesus? He's not in the image of God. Hebrew says he is the image of God, the radiance of the Father's glory. When you look at Jesus in Scripture, you are seeing what the Father is like. You're seeing what he is like. And God says, the best thing I can give to my people is to make them like my son. In a roundabout way of saying, saying, I created you in my image, and I aim to finish the job. I aim to bring you to completion. I aim to make you fully human and fully alive. God has big plans for you. Big dreams for you. Maybe bigger than the ones you had for yourself. God, if I can summarize all that we went through just now, God indwells us by his spirit at new birth. This might happen at a certain date. But then he immediately engages us in the process of becoming formed like Jesus from the inside out. We have words to describe this. Sometimes we say sanctification. Other people say spiritual development. You might say growing in Christ. There's a lots, of, lots of words that we use. My favorite to describe this is a, a phrase you might have heard, spiritual formation. I love that word forming because it speaks of the process. Whatever you want to call it, the process is all over the Bible. Becoming more like Jesus in this life. Paul's speaking about it in the text that we just, we just looked at, but not just there. It's all over his letters. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, he says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. There's that formation, there's that union, there's that anguish, that striving and effort. But he would write in the letter to Ephesians, Uh, Chapter 2, verse 21, in whom the whole structure, Jesus, in in whom the whole structure being joined together, the church, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So now it's not just individual people, it's us together growing in the Lord. There it is again. You'd say to the Colossians in chapter 1, it's Jesus that we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature or complete or perfect All the same words, in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I have to stop and pause for a moment and wonder that the one thing that Paul was driven for was this. I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me to see God's people mature in Christ. He was obsessed, a man obsessed. Salvation is a process of spiritual formation. It starts decisively in a moment of conversion, but it doesn't end until you are made complete when you see Christ face to face. And unless you're dead and you are a Christian, you are in the middle of that process. And the whole Bible screams to you, this must be your glad and happy business and work. This was Paul's driving passion. This was John's driving passion. This was Mary's driving passion. This was Jesus' driving passion. This was the Father's driving passion. This was the Holy Spirit's glad business. And I just want to throw this out there. Should this not also be the driving passion and glad business of reality Santa Barbara as well? Is there something else out there that is a deeper and more heavy and more weighty vision than for several hundred people to become more like Christ from the inside out and to be shot out into the community and scattered in that same light? Is there anything crazier and more reckless and exciting and big than that? If you would say yes to this, like, yeah, I want that, but I don't know how. Maybe you're even, like, way back here, and you're like, I see what you're saying, and that's exciting. I'm just, my heart's just not there. I can barely love, you know, my spouse, much less my enemy. To be honest, I just wake up out of bed every, you know, morning. I'm just trying to pay the bills. Like this is a lot to to wrap my head around. I'm just trying to survive. You know what you could do this morning? Just start right there with the Lord. If God wants to work in you to will and to work, if he wants to start at the heart level, give him your heart today. If you're telling yourself, I want to live for something more. I don't just want to pay the rent. Until I die. I want to be wrapped up and immersed in the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You could start this way. Try it. Just say, God, change my desires. I think this is good. I'm convinced by it in my mind. I just, my heart isn't there. Change my heart, Lord. Give me new desires. God said in Deuteronomy if that's what you do that place of desperation and brokenness and weakness from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all of your heart and all of your soul and ask Cody and the rest of the team to come up this morning so we sing if that's you whether you've been a, a, a believer for decades but you're like I think there's more to the Christian life than what I've been experiencing or you're a fresh believer you're like what do I do now or you're, maybe you're not maybe you're like I, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not I don't know if I want to be all of you can start in the same place over and over and over and say Lord change my heart give me the desires that I'm supposed to have and then from there let's, let's walk together and I believe that for those of you that, that risk your comfort and security in order to ask that question in faith I think God will blow your mind I think he'll take you on an unparalleled journey of love and risk that you've never known And you will understand for the first time why Jesus calls his way of living the blessed life. Starts with asking. If that's you, let's just ask together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And I just ask that I hopefully didn't mess it up too much this morning. Holy Spirit, please do what you do and just make the important things, the things that you're trying, you're wanting to say to the church, bubble to the top where we might be able to feast there in your presence. Give us a longing for something more, for something deeper. Save us from the self-imposed religion of going through motions that we've just created for ourselves. We want a vision of Jesus and the life that he presents to broken people. So show us what that's like. And start with us in our hearts today as we sing in Jesus' name, amen.